Oh boy. I was just gonna have it on. I couldn't be able to hear your heckling and stuff, you know? On here. Alright, we on here? Uh, well, there's one guy. <laughs> uh, it was easy. Alright, we ready for this? Let's pray again. Let's pray again, and then I'll tell you where we're at. Jesus, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for today. Uh, you've given us a world to live in, a community to live in. Uh, you've allowed us to be with other people that know you, how lost we would be without this fellowship. Uh, and I, I ask, God, that we would make the best use of it today. Um, I ask your blessing on every ear and every heart in this room, that the words that you want to be taught would be heard and applied and uh, be uh, reproductive, that would just go out and your church would be built. And the words that might be spoken that aren't of you, I pray that you would uh, just erase them now from my mind and, and don't let us hear them. We want all this to be about you and your glory alone. I pray for attentive minds that we would be able to worship you intelligently now. I pray for uh, hearts that are eager to, to change when your word addresses uh, us and where we need to change. Your word is like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. So I, I pray for hard hearts today, if there are any, that your word would be that hammer, that you would break us and make us into what you desire us to be. Uh, we're clay in your hands. We pray that we would be soft clay and that you would uh, help us be built into vessels of honor and not for dishonor. We worship you. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. Uh, Mark chapter 1. And uh, I have a confession to start off with. I'm glad we're recording here. I have to apologize for a factual error. I wish I didn't have to, but I do. Because I gave you bad information last week. So all the good points of last week, you just have to delete them all. Because I, I made this one point that was... Incorrect. No, I, I said, I said, uh, fully convinced that I was speaking the truth, that um, the cleansing of the temple is not in Mark. That story of Jesus going through the temple, knocking over the tables is not in Mark. That's half true and all wrong. Um, that Jesus did that twice in his ministry. He did that twice. Yes, there's one uh, recorded in John uh, that is not included in Mark. So that's kind of where I was going with there, that and everything. But in Mark, uh, there, Mark chapter 11, I believe, there is that um, one of those events of cleansing the temple is recorded. So I gave you false information and I apologize. And it is a warning to all of you not to believe everything I say. <laughs> ever, 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 ever. Don't believe everything I say. Look it up in the Bible. If I had done that, it would have saved me this apology, of course, if I had looked it up better. But I didn't. And I ran into it this week. In Mark chapter 1, turn there. We're in Mark chapter 1. We're going to make it down to verse 11. And I'm going to read the whole thing and pray for no mistakes. Okay. Verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, 
There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and a spear descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. There we go. Back to verse one. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. This could be a a title, really, um, that the text we taught on last week, the gospel according to Mark, that part at the top of the page, that's not actually, you know, part of the inspired word of God. That's a title that's there to help us. Um, the word starts with verse one. So this would be kind of like Mark's title of the book. And there's a lot in this verse um, because in it we are introduced to the central character of our story. Uh, we are introduced uh, to Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. The word gospel says the beginning of the gospel. Uh, the word gospel means good news. And of course, this is the best news that has ever been spoken in heaven or in earth. Um, The gospel of Mark tells the story of Jesus Christ and how he forgives sins. And that is the best news. Gospel, meaning good news, is almost an understatement. Um, The gospel that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son is good news. And so we can recognize that this is the gospel. Now, the word gospel shows up more times in Mark than in all the other gospels uh, combined, actually. Um, it, the word gospel shows up 12 times, 12 times, this many, 12, 12 times in the four gospels in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Eight of those are in Mark. Um, the word gospel has been defined for us, eight, yeah. The word gospel has been defined for us by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 as the death of Christ, the burial of Christ, and the resurrection of Christ. That is the gospel that, that Paul presented. Um, but it is, not a word that Paul invented or any Christian. The word gospel would have been known both to Romans uh, that Mark was writing to and to Jews like Mark himself. So you can read in the Old Testament, an Old Testament connection to this word gospel and this concept of good news. In Isaiah 52, in Isaiah 52 verse 7, it says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Good news. Who proclaims peace who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Uh, the gospel is good news. It, the, and the good news, the glad tidings of good things, the words of salvation, it says in Isaiah 52, is this, your God reigns. And to the Jew, the gospel, the word gospel, if you were saying, I was, I'm going to preach the gospel, that is a proclamation of the greatness of God. It is a proclamation of God ruling and reigning. And as we look at this gospel, the gospel of Mark, which centers around the death of Christ, the burial of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, that message, our God reigns, our God is in control and he's doing something awesome, still comes through loud and clear. So the Jewish concept of gospel is certainly in Mark. However, Mark is not written to Jews. Talked about that last week. It's written to Gentiles like us, uh, specifically Romans, Roman Gentiles. And they would have had an understanding of this word as well, even if they had never read, you know, the Old Testament, what we'd call the Old Testament. Um, there's an inscription that's been found on, um, on a calendar, actually, from 9 BC. So this is before Christ, 
archaeologists, you know, those kind of people digging this stuff up. Indiana Jones probably found it. And it's a calendar. Um, it's not a paper calendar. It's a rock calendar. And it declares Caesar Augustus as a god, first of all. So, great calendar. Um, it, but it marks his birthday. It marks the birthday of Caesar Augustus, their god, as the beginning of the gospel. And Mark parallels this statement in verse 1. And it goes on, the calendar, it goes on to tell all the wonderful things that Caesar Augustus did, like, you know, establish world peace and things like that, minor issues like that. Um, but the word gospel to the Roman meant the proclamation or the coming of, or the birth of a god. That's the gospel. The beginning of the gospel was the birth of their god, Caesar Augustus, who just decided he was a god one day. Um, and so it's possible that that inscription or one like it or that, you know, manner of speech is what Mark is imitating here, writing to Romans, saying, this is the beginning of the gospel. This is the coming of God. This is where God comes into the picture. I'm going to tell you when God enters humanity. I'm going to give you a hint. It wasn't when Caesar was born. Okay. So Jew and Gentile alike, they would have recognized this verse, the opening, as a declaration of heaven coming to earth. And we need to recognize this gospel as the same. Um, this is a, a, a story of heaven meeting earth, of a reigning, powerful God entering humanity, the coming of a God. This God, who Mark calls the Son of God, and we'll get to that once we get down to verse 11. I'll talk a little bit more about that. Is Jesus Christ, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Uh, Jesus Christ, this is his name and his title. His name is Jesus. Christ is not his last name. Uh, his last name actually was probably Bar Yosef, or Bar Yushef, son of Joseph. That's simple, okay? Yeshua Bar Yushef. Um, and the name Jesus was common. It actually still is. It's just, you know, uh, Jesus is the Greekified version of a Hebrew name. And the Americanified version of the same is Josh. If you know anyone named Josh, they have the same name as Jesus did. Okay, common name. Um, Christ, not his last name, that is a title which means anointed. The Hebrew equivalent would have been the Messiah. Okay, the Messiah. This title carries a whole lot of weight. Um, you know a lot of people named uh, Josh. You don't know a whole lot of people named Christ. Christ, having that title means Jesus is both the savior of humanity and the king of all humanity, both. And he adds on to that and he says he's the very son of God, which is a big deal. And we'll see that in verse 11. So right here in verse, verse 1, before we get into verse 2, we see how, what Mark thinks of this guy, Jesus. And uh, he, knows, he knows who Jesus is. And while the gospel is really about the end of Jesus' life, uh, his death, his burial, his resurrection. This is the beginning of the gospel. We're starting at the beginning of Christ's ministry, where it all began. Um, and before even that starts, uh, the gospel begins with Jesus' cousin, actually. Before we get to a cross or a tomb or anything, we go to Jesus' cousin named John. And before that, we go back to the Old Testament prophecies about Jesus' cousin, John. Verse 2 and 3, we'll take them together. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Mark quotes from two places here, Malachi 3, Malachi 3, 1, and Isaiah 40, verse 3. Um, and he just says it's the prophets. These are prophecies of a messenger 
or a herald. So telling people that someone important is going to show up. Someone really important is coming and I'm going to tell you about it. I'm going to prepare the way for him. Uh, verse 3 specifies that the herald or messenger would cry out in the wilderness, not in the cities. And that he would be saying, prepare the way of the Lord. Now, that statement, prepare the way of the Lord, that matters a great deal. And it tells us a whole lot about Jesus. Okay. Um, the verse Mark is quoting there is from, or yeah, Mark is quoting it. It's about John the Baptist. It's Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. And the word for Lord there is uh, the name of God, Yahweh. Okay. He's saying, prepare the way for the one true God. That's who you're preparing the way for. And we'll see here and in the other Gospels that it is very clear that John the Baptist's ministry was to pre prepare the way for Jesus of Nazareth, this, this person, Jesus. So verse 3 is a claim to Christ's divinity. It is saying that he is the Lord that John the Baptist prepared the way for. John the Baptist didn't just prepare the way for a prophet or just his cousin who he wanted to be famous or something like that. He prepared the way for the Lord. That's what Isaiah was talking about in Isaiah 40. It's God, God Almighty. And John says, I'm preparing the way for God Almighty. And then Jesus shows up and he says, that's the one I was talking to you about. There he is. He is God. We can't really afford to make any mistakes with this. Um, even though we are talking about a real human, we are going to be talking about the man, Jesus Christ, uh, a humble man at that. In speaking of Jesus, we are talking about God himself become man. Jesus, he is certainly the son of God, but he is also God, the son two titles, both of them attributed to this person, Jesus of Nazareth. He is certainly the Son of God. He is also God the Son. I mentioned last week uh, in one of my moments of clarity that uh, Mark leaves out a lot from his account. It's the shortest gospel, so he's got you know stuff missing, you might say, uh, stuff that Matthew and Luke and John included. And some of the stuff that Mark leaves out is a lot of details about this guy, John the Baptist. Luke includes his parents and stories about them and how he was born and stuff like this. And, you know, they, they talk more about him in the other Gospels. Um, John's one and only purpose, as far as Mark sees it, is as a voice and a messenger. That's it. That's what he's there for. That's his purpose. That's his calling. Nothing else really matters. Uh, for someone like that, you don't need to know their family history. You, what you need to know about a person like this is what are they saying and what am I going to do about what they say? So Mark gives it in his, in his brief way, you know, just a few words about John saying, this is what he said, which leaves the reader to go, oh, well, what am I going to do about it? Okay, we, we're not studying the history of John the Baptist. We're studying the message and the voice. He is the voice in the wilderness, pre crying out, prepare the way for the Lord. This abridged version of John the baptizer that we're going to see uh, fits with how John viewed himself. John viewed his own ministry. In the Gospel of John, okay, different John, don't get confused here. The Gospel of John, John the Baptist is quoted as saying, he must increase, speaking of Jesus, and I must decrease. Less of me, more of him. He's basically saying, don't write about me, write about him. Don't follow me, follow him. Don't look at me, look at him. Okay, if, you, if you're going to focus on someone, Focus on Jesus and not John. So, well, I guess I'm disobeying then because we're going to spend a little while talking about John. Um, but John's job was to point people to Christ. And uh, Matthew 11 
In Matthew 11, verse 11, Jesus said that no one had arisen who is greater than John the Baptist. He said he's the greatest prophet of all time, basically. That's what Jesus said of John. Now, when Jesus says someone is great, worth noting, worth looking into, you trust those words and believe, okay, this man is great. What makes him great? You know, those are good questions to ask. What makes a man great in the eyes of God? This guy, John, was great. Uh, I would say that a great man is a man who looks like the greatest man. Uh, and John the Baptist looked like Jesus. He acted like Jesus. The more a person resembles Jesus Christ, the greater that person is. So here we have John the Baptist ser- serving in humility. The guy lives in the desert and eats bugs. Okay, he's, he doesn't take a name for himself. He says, he must increase, I must decrease. When people ask him, who are you? You know, we need to figure out who are you. He says, I'm just a voice. I'm a voice. You can look at John chapter 123 for that. And this kind of humility that John had was really a shadow of the perfect humility that is modeled in Christ. Jesus had the same attitude towards his father. He said, not my will, but yours be done. John chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus says, I have come not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. That kind of attitude is the way John is serving towards Christ. So John's greatness, Jesus said John is the greatest prophet that's ever happened to the world. What made him like that? Well, he was humble like Jesus was humble. That's what made him great. John's greatness was in fact, was in the fact that he was good at imitating the greatest. That is Jesus. John's humility was modeled after Christ's humility. Do you want to become great in the kingdom of God? Become a servant. John did, and he is the greatest. Mark 10, verse 43 is that verse that says, do you want to become great in the kingdom of God? So we'll take a closer look at this guy, John, in verse 4 and 5. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Okay, so this is John the Baptist. Now, in Greek, it would be more accurate to call him John the Baptizer, which is good because John wasn't a Baptist. He wasn't the first, you know, Baptist. Uh, I talked to the Baptist pastor on Tuesdays up the road here. He's never seen this guy at his church, and they don't eat this food at their potlucks. You know, so this is not... John was not a Baptist. He was, but uh, baptizing people did... uh, identify his ministry as something unique. Okay, John came baptizing and calling people to repent of their sins. You can see that in verse 4. His mission, as we saw in verse 2 and 3, was to prepare the way of the Lord, to prepare the way for Jesus. And he does this by calling people to repentance. Repentance and humility is always a prerequisite to a move of God. People repent and God does, does stuff. Okay, 2 Chronicles 7.14, always a popular verse every four years at this time of year. It says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn, that is repent, from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. God responds to repentance. He responds to repentance. He is near to the contrite heart. You can see that throughout the Psalms. When people repent of their sins and seek the face of God, big stuff happens. That's just the way it works. That's the dynamic of church, okay? And this verse is really what John is calling people to. He's he's calling the people of God to return and repent of their ways so that God will hear from heaven and heal their land. Hear from heaven, heal their land. He says, God's coming. I'm preparing the way of the Lord, so repent. 
So turn from your wicked ways because God's coming. Uh, He's calling for repentance in order to prepare the way for a God who heals and forgives. Now, the call to repentance, this is fairly normal for a, a prophet. Um, if you read the, the books of the prophets in the Old Testament, Isaiah, Jeremiah, you know, those guys, um, all of them, they all have a call to repentance, um, turn to God. It's God, God sent prophets to groups of people to call them back to himself. And part of that was always repent, repent, turn, you're, you're doing this and it's wrong, go the other way, that's the way to do it. And most of the time people never listened. Um, there, but there had been no prophet in Israel at this time. By the time John shows up, there hadn't been a prophet in Israel for a good three or four hundred years. So everyone's kind of thinking, well, God doesn't, he just ran out of things to say or something. And John's uh, wiping that uh, assumption clean. He's saying, no, God is speaking right now. In fact, he's going to speak to you in person. Repent. Um, John would have been recognized as a prophet Uh, They knew what prophets looked like, the way they acted. They called people to repent. Uh, He was probably a pretty big deal, probably pretty popular, and he would have been uh, just recognized as a prophet. John was calling people to repent, and that was normal. Now, calling people to be baptized, that wasn't normal. That was kind of new and different. Okay, baptism. Um, it It wasn't an entirely new thing at this point. There was a Jewish ceremony that you could call baptism, um, but that was making a Gentile convert uh, into you know, a proselyte. They're called proselytes. If you're a Gentile and you're like, I want to be part of the Israelite community, well, okay, so they'd, they'd circumcise you first uh, if that was necessary and then baptize you. Needless to say, baptism wasn't real popular because there's a really painful prerequisite before you can get baptized. There wasn't a guy just always dunking people because takes a lot. Okay. And that was for Gentiles coming into the Jewish community. Um, so baptism was known, uh, but it was something for a Gentile to do. John is calling Jews to be baptized. Verse five said, uh, that people were coming from Judea and Jerusalem. He was calling for Jews to be baptized for a Jew to submit to baptism was for them to say, I am far from God. My nationality, my, my race, the the law is not bringing me to God. I am far from God. In fact, I'm as far as away from God as a Gentile, you know, and that would have been hard for them to say, you know, it was for them to say, I'm far from God and I need to be brought near. First Peter 4.17 says that judgment begins with the house of God. And John is going first to the lost sheep of Israel, which is where Jesus went to as well. And we're seeing Jews repenting, turning from their wicked ways. Um, because that's where God shows up first. Jesus said that he came first, came primarily for the lost sheep of Israel. And so his predecessor, John the Baptist, is baptizing in Judea, in Jerusalem. This also parallels, this story with John the Baptist parallels uh, the story in Exodus. In the book of Exodus, when God gave the first covenant, the law, the Ten Commandments and all of that, okay? God gave him a warning and he spoke through his prophet, Moses. He said, I'm coming and I'm going to declare the law. I need all the people to become purified. And there was a a list, you know, there was rules of how they needed to become pure before God came down and got close to them. John is purifying a people in preparation for God coming down to declare to them something better than the law. God is near to the contrite spirit 
And people who were responding to John's preaching were confessing their sins. You can see that in verse 5. They were confessing their sins. They were becoming contrite. They were repenting. So he was preparing their hearts for a God who is near to the humble. He said, God is coming close to you. Now, if you're going to be close to him, start by repenting. That's the kind of person Jesus hangs out with. Um, Verse 6, more about this guy, John. Verse 6, now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Please don't bring this to potluck. Um, Just... Now, you know, there's people participating in the Daniel fast, you know, before the election, which is basically like a vegetarian diet, you know, um, and it's taken from the book of Daniel, even. Um, you don't see people do this John the Baptist fast. You just, and I don't know why, he's great, he's the greatest prophet, so really, if you wanted your food to make God happy, you'd eat bugs. Um, anyway, uh, John looked crazy. He had a shirt made out of camel's hair, big leather belt, um, He's a mountain man, wilderness guy, not really caring about function or fashion, rather. Uh, but his, his uniform, you could call it, is, is something a prophet would wear. You can read about Elijah in the Old Testament, and he would wear the same thing, a hairy shirt and a leather belt. That's what he'd do, okay? Um, so prophets look weird. They did weird stuff. Um, and that was kind of expected. If you've read the prophets, you see them do really weird things to get people's attention and go, What? What are you doing? And then it gets their attention. And then that's why they do it. When Jesus cleanses the temple the first time, in fact, that was kind of a weird thing to people. And they say like, well, are you, you must be a prophet. So you're a prophet because you're acting all crazy. So John the Baptist is kind of crazy. I mean, he's acting like a prophet. Um, and the food he's eating probably isn't, you know, just to be weird or a peculiar taste or something. You know, he's He's eating what he can get. He doesn't have, the, he, he quit his day job to do this, you know? Like, uh, so he's, he's finding the bugs and, and the honey, and that's what he's got, so that's what he's eating. But it was peculiar enough for all four gospel writers to note, ooh, bugs and honey, hmm, okay. But he was preaching, and that's important. That's more important than his diet. He was preaching, and the message wasn't about him. He wasn't promoting himself or the John the Baptist diet. Verse 7, this is what he preached. It says, And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. John spoke about Jesus. And this is what made John the greatest prophet. He spoke about Jesus. He was singularly focused on elevating Christ, on bringing people's eyes to Christ and bringing Christ to a place where people's eyes couldn't help but fall on him. Okay, that's what John was all about. Um, John's service was not selfish. The glory of God was his chief concern. And as we look at John as a servant, as a servant that, you know, we should be able to imitate, we, we should look at him as a role model, uh, we can notice this. Your service to God, our service to God will be successful when the glory of God is our first priority. Okay, John's first priority, his, his focus was elevating Christ. Make that your priority in any act of service. That was John's ministry, elevating Jesus. He says that Jesus is mightier than I. He says one is coming. Literally, he says there is the one who is coming. There is the one who is mightier than I. Okay. It's an individual. It's not just some guy might show up someday. He's talking about an individual person that has been prophesied for a thousand plus years before, you know, thousands of years. Jesus is coming. He says he's coming. He says the one who is mightier than I is coming. And he says that he, John, is unworthy 
to get down on his knees and unstrap his sandal. Now, what he's talking about here is he's talking about um, foot washing. When you go into someone's house, the, their lowest, lowest, lowest slave, okay, it would be their job to, to wash your feet. And it was, very, it was a humiliating task. You wouldn't have a slave that you liked do the job. You know, it was, a, um, it was a, a humbling act of service. And John says, I'm not even important enough to do the lowest job possible towards this guy. I am unworthy to serve this master, to serve this God by washing his feet. That, that's too much for me. That's too much. I'm not, and I shouldn't even get a look at him. You know, it's, uh, he is great, so much greater than I. I'm unworthy even to stoop down and wash his feet. And again, we see John's humility. Now, at this point, John has a pretty successful ministry by our standards of success. He had disciples, just like Jesus would have. Um, he was baptizing a lot of people. You know, in verse 5, it uses hyperbole a little bit. It says, all from Judea came out. Like, there's pretty much everyone. Like, stores were closed because people were going out to see John. He's successful, okay? But his purpose was, was only to prepare the way for Jesus. His purpose was not to have a successful ministry. Um, his purpose was to elevate Christ. And even once, once Jesus came on the picture, it kind of really, it really killed John's ministry <laughs> in a lot of ways. John's disciples started going to be Jesus's disciples. Like, hey, where'd you, Andrew, one of the 12 apostles. Okay, Andrew, Peter's brother, was a disciple of John's before he became a disciple of Jesus. But John was working himself out of a job on purpose. He says, my purpose is to point to the one who is greater than I, so much greater that I don't, I'm not even worthy to wash his feet. That's who I want you to be looking at. Successful ministry is elevating Christ. That's what it is. Verse 8. John speaking still, he says, I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is cool. John draws a sharp contrast between himself and Jesus, between his ministry and what Jesus' ministry would be. Uh, John's water baptism was one, according to verse 4, that represented repentance of sin. He was preaching a baptism of repentance of sin. Okay? Turn from your wicked ways. That's probably some, something like that, you know, he would have said fairly frequently. And he baptizes them in water. And John's baptism, just like Christian baptism, which we celebrated a few weeks back, you know, Christian baptism would come later because there's no Christians at this point. Jesus hasn't risen from the dead. But John's baptism, like Christian baptism, was a symbol of an inward change. He's saying, repent of your sins and show it like this. I'll wash you in the water because you're washing yourself. You're repenting of your sins. Um, but being baptized by the Holy Spirit, that's kind of a different story. You know, John, being baptized by water, uh, a person was declaring, I am repenting of my sins. But John says, there's one coming who's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And that's why I am unworthy to even untie his sandal straps. He knows, John knows, all I can do is dip you in the water. But the one who is coming can change you from the inside out. That's out of my league. Okay? I can baptize you in water. I can dip you in this river and pull you back out. He can dip you. He can immerse you in God himself. And you don't need to come back up for air. Okay, that's who's coming. He's out of my league. Uh, Ephesians 4 verse 5, it says that there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Okay, there's one baptism. All Christians, 
whether they're Baptists or not. Okay, all Christians, upon the moment of conversion, are baptized into Christ. We get immersed in God. Jesus submerges a person in the Holy Spirit. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, it says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. He says we're baptized into the body of Christ. Uh, the word baptized means to completely submerge or immerse or to sink even. Um, we have been immersed by the Holy Spirit into the Holy Spirit, made a part of this one body, the capital C church that we are a part of, the body of Christ, and the Holy Spirit gives a person a new nature. John's baptism couldn't compete with that. John's baptism gave people a chance to repent of sins, to show that they were repenting of sins. Uh, just like the other Old, Pro Old Testament prophets did, saying, turn back to God. You're going the wrong way. Turn back. Follow God. And people responded to that and said, okay, I'll do it. But Jesus was going to do something new because he was going to make people new. He was going to make everyone into a new creation. Ezekiel 36, Old Testament prophet here, Ezekiel 36, 26 uh, Zeke, prophet Zeke prophesied to Israel. He said, uh, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a, and give you a heart of flesh. That was prophesied to Israel. But this is what Jesus does to people he saves. He gives them a new heart through the Holy Spirit. Taking a bath in the Jordan River can't do that. Um, Jeremiah 31, verse 31, prophesies of the new covenant. And I use this verse for communion now and then. John, um, excuse me. And God says, John didn't say this part. God says in Jeremiah 31, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. So John the Baptist says, I am baptizing you with water to show, for you to show that you're sorry for your sins. And you're heading in a new direction. That's great. But you know what? There's one coming who will completely submerge you in the Holy Spirit and change you at your very core. That's who's coming. Prepare yourself for that. Um, the gospel. We have the gospel. It doesn't end with a person confessing their sins and repenting. Remember, this is the beginning of the gospel. Verse 1. This is the beginning of the gospel. Okay? The author of Hebrews says, uh, some mysterious things. And one of them, he says, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity and not laying again a foundation of repentance of dead works and of faith towards God. He's saying, let's, let's stop talking about just repenting of your sins over and over and over again. Let's go on to maturity. Let's talk about, you know, the greater things of God. Repentance is the foundation. Hebrews 6.1, it says that. Repentance is the foundation and it's the foundation that John is, is laying. Okay, but it's not the whole house. Repentance is not the whole house. The gospel is not say you're sorry, try to do better. Um, the gospel involves a baptism, not just of repentance, but of the Holy Spirit, because Jesus doesn't tell people uh, to try and change. He says, get over here and I'm going to change you. <laughs> I'm going to change who you are at your core. John was prophesying of a day in the near future when the baptism of repentance would be followed by a baptism of the Holy Spirit. Those who had listened to John's preaching and responded, those who had confessed their sins, were now prepared or preparing themselves to meet with the one who has the authority to forgive sins. 
okay, and to cleanse from all unrighteousness. Those who were baptized by John in the Jordan did so with an anticipation of the one who would clean their hearts. And they, they got that. Verse 9, Jesus shows up. This is great. Verse 9, it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Jesus shows up. John is preaching. He says, there's one coming. He's coming. He's coming. He comes. Verse 9, he comes. So John was baptizing in the Jordan River, um, baptizing mostly people from Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. That's what it looks like. Jew and Gentile, but it's definitely a Jewish populated area. Now we have this one guy from up north, from Nazareth. Okay, Jesus is from Nazareth. He's not from with the rest of the crowd that's being baptized. And Jesus is, of course, uh, the person that John had been speaking of. When John saw him, this is what happened. When John saw Jesus, God spoke to John and told him, that's the one. And John declared him to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1.29. They were cousins, but they didn't like have family reunions at Thanksgiving. John was in the wilderness, just out in the woods, you know, by himself in the desert until he started preaching. So God told John, there's your cousin Jesus. Talk about him. And he says, there's the one. And then Jesus gets baptized. And that's, that's significant for sure, but it's kind of confusing too. Um, we think of baptism uh, to be for, you know, sinners. Uh, it's to repent of sin. What need did Jesus have of being baptized? Uh, John was preaching to people, to the nation of Israel, saying, repent because there's one coming who is mighty. And then this mighty one comes and then gets baptized with the rest of them. And, you know, John had just said, there's one who's coming to you who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. But there is a clear contrast between the, the baptism that Jesus was to perform and the baptism that he himself submits to in the water. He gets water baptized. Okay. John was telling them of a mighty one, a ruler even, someone who's in charge and knows it. And then Jesus comes humbly. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Mark 10, 45. Jesus came as a servant. He walks in the water and he says, baptize me. And that same humility that John was showing in reverence to Christ, saying, I am not worthy of even untying his sandals, Jesus is showing as a servant to his father, saying, I'm going to do this humbly, lowly. Now remember, baptism isn't what cleans a person up. Okay, it's a sign. It's a visual aid of a spiritual truth. Hopefully this is all pretty clear in your minds now because we did baptism, you know, a few weeks back. Um, baptism declares, I'm done with the past. From here on out, it's me and Jesus. So in saying, why did Jesus get baptized? You could really say that he is now declaring uh, his ministry to, his, to have officially started. He's saying, no more of this carpenter business. I've been doing that for a while. From here on out, preaching. That's it. And that's true. This does mark the beginning of Christ's ministry. Uh, but I think there's even more significance in Christ's baptism for us to see here. Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist. Everything Jesus did, he did for his father and for us. Okay? Remember, we're looking at Jesus the servant. He's serving. He serves you. He serves his father. And if we were to focus in on the real meat of the gospel, you know, the last few days of Jesus's life, we would see that his death, well, that wasn't for himself. Okay, that was for you and to please his father. 
he didn't die for his own sins. He died for you, and it pleased the Father to crush him. Okay? He asked, Father, let this cup pass, but not my will, yours be done. Okay? He never stops serving his Father and the children his Father loves and gives to him. Okay? Jesus died for you, not for himself. He was buried for you. He rose for you. But even before that, he lived for you. Okay? The sinless life that Jesus lived on earth was a life pleasing to God. It was without sin. Not so God could be pleased with Jesus. He already was. That didn't change. But now he can be pleased with a man. And in that, he can be pleased with us men, humans. God became a man so that man could be with God. All right? He lived a perfect life because you couldn't. We know this stuff, right? This, is a, this life he lived on your behalf includes his baptism. Uh, throughout Jesus' life, he act, acted as a representative of you. Uh, his death was a death for you, that you died. We died with Christ. All right? His baptism also was a baptism for you. Baptism signified repentance of sin. Did Jesus have sin to repent of? No. Was he repenting of his own sin? No. But I do believe that he was repenting of yours. Okay? He received the sign of repentance before God on behalf of the people of God. Jesus is coming to God, his father, and saying, they're, they're a mess, really. Um, they're, they're so lost. And instead of looking at them and their sin, I want you to look at me, father, and I'm repenting of their sin. This is how Jesus could say, father, forgive them for they, they don't know what they're doing. Jesus was baptized. He received the sign of repentance on behalf of the people of God. Jesus represents you. That's why I, I often say, you know, we are in Christ. That's biblical. And I encourage you to identify with Christ. And if you can do that, if you can see Christ as your representative, then this next verse should thrill you. Verse 10, Christ, our representative. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the spirit descending upon him like a dove. Christ's repentance was accepted by heaven immediately. And you have that word immediately. Those things are happening quick. That's the word that's going to show up like 40 times in Mark. And as Jesus is coming up out of the water, uh, at the same time, the heavens are, are parting. Okay. John was baptizing people all day, but this is the only baptism that made heaven rejoice. Okay. I have no idea what this looked like. If the sky was ripping in two, was it loud? Like, well, I don't know. But the heavens part, this cosmic event is happening. Uh, something that Isaiah had actually prayed for in looking at an unrepentant people. Isaiah 64 verse 1, Isaiah prayed, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. He says, I wish you'd just split open the sky and fix things. And Isaiah's prayer has now been answered. Okay, God did come, come down, the heavens were rent, and God the Father himself authorizes and endorses Jesus, his life, his ministry, with the visible presence of the Holy Spirit. It's a lot happening, and Christ is acting here as your representative. Luke 3 verse 22 specifies that the Holy Spirit actually came in bodily form. It wasn't just like, that kind of looks like a dove, that thing that's happening over there. It was a dove. It was a bodily, physical dove that came down and, and rested on Jesus. All who were there could see that this dove had landed on Jesus. Now we know from John 3, uh, 34, another text, that Jesus of Nazareth had the spirit without measure. 
uh, and he was himself God. So he didn't change at this moment or receive like an extra helping of Holy Spirit power, you know, um, just like God didn't just now decide, oh, I approve of Jesus. Yeah, after all, I really like him. You know, they had been in, in eternal love forever before this ever happened. Um, but now it was visible. It was audible. It was evident to everyone witnessing that Jesus was the Son of God who had been baptized, not just with water, but with the Holy Spirit. Uh, this is declaring to the people there, to John, to, the, to the John's disciples who would end up following Jesus, to the crowds there, that this is the one that spoke in Isaiah chapter 61, saying, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Jesus would later t declare this verse as kind of his theme verse for ministry. He went to a synagogue and said, this is, this is the verse that is taken, you know, has been fulfilled in your hearing today. And, but even before he declared that in Luke chapter 4, all those at his baptism could see the Spirit of the Lord God is upon him. That's the Son of God. And again, Jesus was God long before he was man. Uh, he didn't become the son of God at this moment, but rather used this moment to declare himself to be what he already was. Does that make sense at all? I hope it does. Uh, in being baptized, Jesus was baptized. He was both identifying with sinful man, us, being baptized like we need to be baptized, repenting because we don't. <laughs> okay? He's identifying with sinful man. He's also being identified to sinful man as a holy God. Sinful man can look at Jesus and be like, that's, that's God following him. He certainly provides us with another example of successful service as well. Um, Jesus, the perfect man, did not begin his ministry without receiving the commission from heaven. Um, don't be deceived into thinking that your good intentions are all it takes to get work done in the kingdom of God. Okay, Jesus tells us in John 15, 5, without me, you can do nothing. And he modeled this for us by showing that service to God starts with God and is empowered by God. Jesus starts his ministry after the Holy Spirit come upon him and everyone could know he's doing this with God, not just on his own. To, re to repeat a verse from last week, Mark 16, verse 20 Speaking of the disciples at the end of the gospel, it says the Lord was working with them. And that was even true of God. He was working with the rest of the Trinity. The only way to serve God is in the power of God, with God. In verse 11, it says, Then a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The heavens are opened up. Uh, Luke mentions in his gospel that while this is happening, Jesus is praying I tend to think he was praying for us. He, he wasn't repenting for his own sins. Uh, and Jesus comes up and God speaks from heaven. God speaks and identifies Jesus not just as a servant or a prophet who has the fullness of, of the Spirit, but also as his beloved son. He says, this is my son. This one, Jesus, he's my son. This is the moment in time that marks the beginning of Christ's ministry. So it begins. It starts here. Okay. And from here on out, he, his feet are on the ground running. Okay. It, but it states here the relationship that Christ has with God. He is his son. Verses 10 and 11 give us the Trinity. There's some heavy doctrine here right in the first chapter, really the first study in Mark. 
You have the Father speaking from heaven, approving of Christ. You have the Son of God, Jesus, submitting himself to the Father as a humble servant, serving the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit, who came from the Father and rests on the Son. Okay, don't ask me to explain this, but it's all there. Okay, you have all three parts of the Trinity at the same time existing, serving each other um, with one purpose, one mission. I don't, I don't have to explain it. Okay, so don't ask. Uh, I don't have to explain how it works, but I can show it to you here. I can show you the Trinity and say, actually, it works just fine. Thank you. It works great. It works great. It works with the same purpose of any other service to glorify God. And this Trinity is existing now in glorifying itself. The Spirit is approving of the Son. The Father is approving of the Son. The Son is glorifying the Father, serving the Father in humility, full of the Spirit. So far in Mark, in these 11 verses, we've seen four, four witnesses talk about Jesus. There's four mentions of Jesus. Mark, the author, said that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. The prophets of the Old Testament, Isaiah and uh, who is that other guy? Malachi um, said that Jesus was the Lord, God himself. Verse three, John the Baptist, um, a prophet, Jesus's cousin, said that Jesus was the one who was mightier than him, who was so exalted that John considers himself unworthy even to be his lowest slave, uh, who would take off his shoes. And John says that there's one coming who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And then finally, we have God the Father, God himself, declaring Jesus to be his beloved son in whom he is well pleased. All right. There's a lot of voices in this first passage saying, Jesus, check it out. Jesus, he's God. Look at him. Jesus. It's about Jesus. Oh, look, it's about Jesus. People telling people about Jesus. God telling people about Jesus. Even the heavens. Psalm 19 says the heavens declare the glory of God. Never think you're involved in evangelism by yourself. God's been doing it way longer than you have. Okay. And everything else he's made. Um, so we have the beginning of the gospel of Christ here. Mark 1 through 11, we see Everything point to Christ. And I pray that our lives would do the same. Our words would do the same. That our hearts would be as John the Baptist was saying, he must increase more of Jesus. Let's get more of Jesus and less of anything else that would raise itself up against Jesus, whether it's me or something else. More of Jesus, less of everything else. More of Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, let's let your church elevate you, please, and lift you high and exalt you and praise you. Uh, Be enthroned in the praises of your people. Uh, We want to be like these voices. We want to be like John who declares you, like the prophets who declare you as God, as Mark even, who identified you as the Son of God. Um, You've become like us, but you're so unlike us. And we want to be like you are. We want to be holy like you are. And we thank you for being... um, breakable and weak like us so that we could become like you are. Make us like Jesus. Make us love like Jesus and think like Jesus and appear as Jesus did uh, to our community, our families, uh, wherever you have us this week. Bless us and let this life be uh, lived and driven by the power of the Holy Spirit that you have baptized us into. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Class dismissed.